This is the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the bullwhip crack like this. Let's begin now. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with producer Howard Kazanjian, all about his book, Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life. We talk a little bit about how he got into the business, what it was like working on The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Little Return of the Jedi, Demolition Man, working with Alfred Hitchcock. This is one hour worth of stories that you're going to hear. Howard's book is chock full of them. Fantastic book, written by our old friend J.W. Rinsler. Rest in peace. I've been after Howard for quite a few years, and was glad that we finally got to sit down and have a good conversation. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Why now, or 2021, when it came out, what prompted you to do this with Mr. Rinsler? For years, my peers have been telling me, Howard, you've worked with Hitchcock, you've worked with this person and that person. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And Randall Kleiser was the pushiest. He was the one that just every time we'd see, when are you writing that book? And he has written now a couple books. And over the years, I've been keeping call sheets, production reports, records, copies of interviews, making notes. I have, hate to admit it, but about 23 boxes of notes and whatnot and pictures and things like that. And so I put it all together, but I couldn't put it together. I couldn't write about myself. I co-write some other books, but I couldn't do it about myself. I met Rinsler through another friend, Brendan Allinger, and I actually met him in Comic-Con, I think. And he had written three or four or five Star Wars, Lucasfilm, beautiful novels, books. And he said, I'd love to take this on. I want to do it. And so we met for two days. We communicated a lot by email. Of course, much of it was during the pandemic. And I kept sending him stuff. And between him and Allinger, they threw out a lot of stuff. And I'm very pleased with the book. The publisher said 150 pages. It's 400, <laughs> including the pictures. And they loved it. And during that transition, publishers sold to another publisher who didn't do those type of books. They saw what it was. They said, oh, we've got to do it. Not going to touch it. We're not going to edit it. We're going to leave whatever you guys have done. The only thing they got involved in, it was a cover. And then it went back and forth and back and forth. And I said, do the cover. And that's it. Very lucky. I'm very happy with the book. Now we move on to other things. But the book was written, as I said in the beginning, not for the ego of it. I want potential young filmmakers and others to know the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. But also, he really think about much of what I've written. It's about determination. It's about finding a goal, whatever business you're looking for. Perseverance, and it's going after what you really want to do, what you love. But you can't start at the top. You don't have to start at the bottom where I did, but you got to learn the trade. You've got, whether it's what you do or the film business or architecture, you've got to learn. You can't start at the top. And I've seen so many people fail, directors included. They might have one or two good pictures, but if they don't know their crew, they don't know what their crew members are doing. If they don't know how pictures are made other than directing, you're going to fail. So I hope that message came across. But I'm happy to just move on to other things now. There's also been this kind of myth of the late 60s going into the 70s, where it's the film brats coming in and just sweeping the floor and taking everything over. But we forget that there were people like yourselves that have been involved in 
the movie industry for years, if not decades. And these movie brats are relying on folks like you to help them along. Have You've got the training and you've got the trade to be able to make things possible. One of the sad things about our business and others is once you pass 40, so many people think you don't know anything anymore. And I really feel sorry for writers who have really reached their potential. They understand story. They understand structure. And that's true with directors and other people as well. It's a challenge. Yes, you're right in what you just said. Yeah, it's just amazing to read some of those stories about working with Alfred Hitchcock or working with Billy Wilder, just these luminaries and them as well as so many other people that you had worked with over the years. Moving up the ladder as you did over such a long period of time, love to read the stories of that. We could have written 800 to 1,000 pages because a lot of the detail is not in there. In fact, I've gone back now and I've added 100 pages, 110 pages or so to the book, not to be published, just for a record, for my kids or whomever. And I, any of us could keep adding and telling stories and whatnot, but, it, but you got to keep the book interesting. How was that going to work every day and working with Alfred Hitchcock? It was what, and I've worked with some great people and you know who I've worked with, but Hitchcock was something else. He was the only one really that mentored me. As I say in the book, he sat with me every single morning and we talked about his films. And he would say, Howard, do you know why I did such and such? Do you know why I don't like inserts? And sometimes you knew the answer, but you'd say, tell me, Mr. Hitchcock. If it's a telephone ringing, I don't like to do an insert of a telephone. I like to start on the actor reaching for the telephone, and then it's a close-up or vice versa. And then he'd say, I want you to look at a particular film. And then he'd say, in, in Vertigo, in, in Ernie's Bar, what color dress was Kim Novak wearing? And I said, green. And he said, no. Pause. <laughs> My eyes open. He said, world brain. And that taught me something. And he would do things like that. And then he'd say, all right, let's take that same scene. What direction were the extras moving, walking? They never walked towards camera. Kim Novak was walking towards camera. Nobody. They crisscross. Taught me. And he's right. And one of the films we were looking at before we started shooting, and he was in the theater. Rarely was he in the theater when we were looking at his old films. It was Swashbuckler. And he was looking at that because the music was done by, no, we were looking at Jaws. The mu music was done by Johnny Williams. And then we looked at Swashbuckler, and he, he stopped the projector, and he had his own projection room. And he said, okay, there's this scene where we're on the second floor. It's a period picture, second floor, and we hear a carriage pull up downstairs. You hear it on the gravel road. And the person goes to the window and he looks down. And then the camera jumps down and you meet the lady and the guy and they're whispering to each other. Then the camera goes back upstairs for a point of view. And he said, how, how can the camera go downstairs? We're upstairs. And I understand most directors do, but I understood what he was saying. You have to keep the camera in that position. He's done it many times in car chases. You're in the car. You have to stay in the car. He said, he was telling North by Northwest, he says, do you remember the train sequence? Yes, we talked about a lot of things in the train. And he said, don't understand how a filmmaker can put the camera out in the field with the sheep and get a shot of the train going left to right or right to left. He said, I shoot out the window and we see the train go around a curve. He never leaves the train. 
And there's something psychologically right about that, especially with his suspense movies. Yeah, he he mentored me every single day, every single morning in pre-production. And we usually had a shoot at 9 a.m. And I was there much, much earlier and setting the cast and all of that. And then we'd sit in, and if he came in at 8.30, sometimes we'd sit in his dressing room trailer when we're shooting, and we'd have coffee on China, and he'd talk to me about filmmaking. How could you beat that? What more would you want? What an education that must have been. It was. And then, or he'd invite me to lunch in his room, and he, we'd not talk about movies, but we'd talk about his past, maybe his dog. And he'd set me up. One day, he was a box. Right by, we were having lunch in his private office. There was a box on the floor very near to where I was sitting. And that was a setup. And I'm looking down and looking down. And he said, do you know what's in that box? (laughs) No, Mr. It was Mr. Hitchcock at that time. No, Mr. Hitchcock. And he said, it's from London. And he says that they're slippers. And I said, it's a fairly big box for slippers. He says, there's a dozen of them. And I said, a dozen slippers? He said, yes, because my dog chews them. It had nothing to do with nothing, but it was a conversation piece. Did he have a good sense of humor about himself and his work, or was he just serious all the time? Uh, He wasn't serious. He wanted to have fun. At that age, he had established himself as Hitchcock, and he'd talk about, I don't like to do the commercials for Universal Tours, and a grandchild was just born today who never would have to work. Things like that. No, he had some humor, but he wouldn't show it to anyone else. There are some talented people out there that one is afraid of, and you're afraid to approach, and you're afraid to talk. And I've been there before, and it took me a little bit of time to really reach out to Hitchcock where I could talk one-on-one. But the crew were afraid of him. And this was the same with Billy Wilder. People were afraid of Billy Wilder, but more so with Hitchcock. And finally, one day I said to Bob Murdoch, who was a prop man, Bob, rather than you asking me, I said, come in and talk to him. He'd tell stories about his youth and why he didn't like policemen and stuff like that, why he didn't drive. I know you worked on Family Plot, but there was always talk of another movie, one that he would do after that. How close did that ever come? He was working on it. He was passionate about it. He had told me earlier that he could make the phone book. That's what his contract called for. He could make the phone book as long as the budget was, I don't remember now, $5 million or $7 million. That was a lot of money for those days. And how do I say this? The studio, Lou Wasserman, took it away from him. They felt that he was too old, maybe too feeble, and it, that killed him, in my opinion. I was there. He had asked the studio, can we do the picture if Howard Kazanjian works with me? And Howard will do most of the legwork. Because I did most of the legwork on the other picture. I was busy with Raiders of the Lost Ark. I couldn't do it. But it was Wasserman that, this is Howard Kazanjian telling you. Wasserman and the studio took it away. He was crushed, absolutely crushed, because he had given his life to Universal. That was his home. And he was having some difficulties at that time with his wife, who was ill. And she was his world, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. One of his best collaborators, quite often. Yes. Yeah. And that's how they originally met in London, that both of them were in the business. In the beginning, she would come in about every other week and have lunch with him. Then she got ill, and there there were times that he would go home early, leave at noon or one o'clock, and say, you finished the picture. You finished the day's work. So we don't talk about it. Maybe it's in the book. We don't talk about it. So I would direct the rest of the day. But it wasn't me directing, but... It wasn't me. It was him 
through me because he had brainwashed me so I knew what he was going to do. I was the one that would say, quiet, roll cameras, action. Nearly every shot, I would say action. He never rarely did. And I would say cut. And it wasn't me directing, but I knew what he wanted. I sensed him. Oh, he was wonderful. He'd sit in front of the camera, right underneath the camera, and he'd turn back and he'd say, Lenny, put on a 50 millimeter and cut through the third button of the actor. And on the left-hand side, you should be just cutting through the doorknob. And on the right, you should be, boy, he knew his lenses. He knew what he wanted. And he didn't go to dailies because he said, you guys better get it right. He stepped me to dailies. And there was only two times where I came back and I said, Mr. Hitchcock, you need to come and see the day's work, a particular shot that wasn't working. And then we'd go back and shoot it again. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Again, I've worked with other great directors, but this guy was like a father figure to me. You worked on one that I just absolutely love, Roller Coaster. What was your experience like working as a production executive on that one? Jim Goldstone, who had just done Swashbuckler at the studio, and Lincoln Levinson wrote the screenplay, and I had worked with them previously. And it was really a family. Jim was one of the nicest directors you could ever work with. And there have been others never said anything negative about anybody, even though something would go wrong. Was he the greatest director in the world? Was he the great? And he was very much involved in editing. Was he the best editor in the world? But I loved him. And I had hoped to do another picture with him. And he fell ill. We tried to do another picture. He fell ill. It was a different type of picture, whether it was successful or it was successful, but whether it was a wonderful picture to be credited on, I'm glad I did it. We scouted locations. I was there from the beginning and there through all the mix, right to delivery. And I was close to Jennings Lang, who was the producer, the boss. Mm. And I had worked with Jennings on the front page. So we all knew each other. What were Lincoln Levinson like to work with? Fast. Here's a little story. They were doing Columbo. They'd been around a long time. Uh, they had written a number of projects for Universal. So I did the budget for Roller Coaster. And the studio, I don't remember exactly what it was. The studio said, it's too high. You've got to cut the budget. So I went to see, my office was right there near Lincoln Levinson. I went to see them and they said, yeah. And they went through the script and they crossed out some stuff real five or six pages real quick. And I, my eyes are open and they said, we expected the studio. So we wrote the scene knowing that we wanted to take it out. Something I learned. I'm not a writer, but some, but it's something as a producer, if they're going to get, they always want to cut the studio's budget. So you put something in there, you're going to take out. Or if they don't tell you to take it out down the line, you go say, we really don't need this scene. Yeah, I like them. What was that like transitioning from an assistant director into full-time producer with things like American Graffiti? I went to school with George Lucas, so that's where we first met. After school, I was the one that introduced him to Francis Coppola. And George asked if I would do the feature film, THX 1138, because we were seeing each other all the time on Finian's. And I said, yes, but I had just recently got paid dues and gotten director's guild, which is, I was a trainee for two years and I couldn't work non-union at that time. Do we switch off with permission today? Yes, you can. And I could, couldn't do the film. So I said, no, I mean, it was obvious I couldn't do it. And then George was going to do American Graffiti. And I said, yes, but the film I was working on 
got delayed and he had to go without me. So that was the second no. Now he asked me to do Star Wars. And the film I was working on got delayed. I don't remember if it got delayed or we were a month away from finishing it. And that was the third time I said no. Now, you don't say no to George and you don't say no to a lot of people. But he asked me to lunch when the studio said we'd like to do the sequel to Marin Kitty. And he's at lunch, he said, look, he said, the studio wants me to do the sequel to American Graffiti. I really don't want to do it. But if I don't do it, they're going to do it without me. Would you produce it? I said, yes. And that was at the end of Roller Coaster. How did Bill Norton get involved in that one? We needed a writer and eventually a director. And George likes writer-directors. So that was the first challenge, a writer-director. And one that maybe had lived through that period, whether it had been Haight-Ashbury or those three or four, or the Vietnam War and all of that. So there were several people we were looking at. A few weren't available. A few George didn't want to go with. And eventually became Bill Norton. The caveat was, if the script works that you're writing, then you can direct. That's how it got down to a process of elimination, but there weren't a lot of people we were that fit that category and had a head about that genre. How did the film work? I've revisited it recently, and I think a lot of it does. I especially like the use of the multiple screens, the split screen, and just all the different POVs that are going on in there. I thought that was a neat idea and does reflect the 60s pretty well. Exactly. That episode reflected the hippie sequence where it was split screen and all of that. And Vietnam, we shot on a, on 16 millimeter, which on the news at night, Vietnam. And well, Ron Howard's sequence was widescreen. What it may have lacked was a little bit of humor that the first one had. Also, the times weren't happy. Now, should we have stuffed it with some kind of humor? Look, it's hard to make a movie. It's hard to make a successful movie. Be right on. Can you talk a little bit about where Empire Strikes Back was when you came on to that project? I came on before the original Star Wars was released. And remember, George had asked me if I'd be with him on that. I never said, was I producing it or was I associate producer or co-producer? I never got that. Couldn't do it. I wasn't available. The one empire after that and before there, after the release, he said to me, I want you to be in every meeting on the Empire Strikes Back. Now, meetings were held in Northern California and many of them actually on the Universal lot where we had offices. He said, I want you to be in every meeting unless you have to get an airplane all the time and fly up north. And he would come down to Los Angeles and because you're going to produce the third one. So he's already thinking that far ahead. I don't want to talk about Gary Kurtz and why Gary didn't do the third one. Gary almost didn't do the second one. In fact, Gary Kurtz, I took over as you may have known or saw in the book, towards the end of The Empire Strikes Back because it went way over budget. But I followed. I was the one in the beginning that broke it down, worked on the budget, broke down a a huge board for the special effects. I didn't tell them how to make the special effects and broke down the live action, broke it down into days and weeks and all of that. So I followed it very closely, every every very closely. That must have been huge to break down that production. You think about the original Star Wars and there's maybe four or five locations and this, you are going from planet to Cloud City and so many moving parts. You break each part down, figure out how you think you're going to shoot, what order you're going to shoot in. And then obviously when they really got close and they were building the sets, then they maybe a set isn't ready on time, so you change the order. Plus, you try to shoot all your people 
at one time, especially Obi-Wan, the character for Obi-Wan Kenobi. You can't have him there for the whole picture. So those are the things that really determine how you shoot or the order that you shoot. Was that mostly shot in England? Yes. There was a little bit of post-production done. George had built a new stage at ILN. So there was some post-production done there. There were some shots of, and I'm the assistant director at that time because Gary was off on another picture in Europe and worked with the director. And there were little stuff. There was a big mat shot of the hangar with the Falcon and the X-Wings. And now you had all these people. We'd shoot all these people on the ground, and then ILM would take over. Actually, ILM was the camera people, but ILM knew what they wanted to composite it. So there were some inserts and things like that done in, in Marin. Obviously, the snow battle, but it was all in Europe. Yeah, it was all at EMIL Street. Yeah, I heard that that shooting in the cold was quite an ordeal. It's not easy to make a movie. The more money you have doesn't mean it's easier to make. It feels like the more money you have, the more problems you might have to address. Yeah, and the longer the shoot. You know, you're doing television. I did some very little television way after that, and your problems are only for six or seven days, and then you're under another episode. I mean, gee. I love the story that you tell in the book about coming up with the schedule for Raiders of the Lost Ark and that you had the two schedules, one for the studio and one for the actual production. I love that. Fortunately, it was years later that I could tell that story. Never tell it at the time, especially to my dear friend, Charlie McGuire, who was at Paramount at the time. And Charlie knew me from Warner Brothers and other places that we had worked together. So when I said, Charlie, don't worry, we're on schedule. He believed me because he knew I was on as Howard. And Stephen wanted to, Stephen liked the idea of two boards because we really were following the shorter schedule. I mean, that's another one. Talk about moving parts. What was that like when you were brought on to Raiders? Again, that started from the very beginning. I was the one that first scouted because it took place in Egypt. I went to Egypt. And it it wasn't going to work out, crews and all of that. And George said to me, why don't you check where we did Star Wars? And that's what we did. And that was a little, we don't think about it, but that was a little dangerous because there have been been some, I don't want to name them, but people crossing the border and killing people. We had Steven Spielberg. So we had, and no one knew it, we had a guard there, and I don't even know that Stephen knew it, watching very carefully because he was Jewish. But I would say, look, I love Star Wars. I love Billy Wilder's films and Hitchcock films and so many others, but Raiders of the Lost Ark is more me. I like that type of filmmaking. I like a period picture. Star Wars was a period picture, but but not a period picture. And Raiders is my type of film. So I enjoyed it probably the most. Was it challenging? Sure. Yeah. You have to figure out where you're going to shoot. Where's the jungle? And there was strike going on at the time. Actor strike. But we had signed all of our actors to equity. Now, today it's SAG equity, but back then it was equity, which is the European Actors Union. So when the when SAG struck, we kept working. And actually, there was a production in London at the time with American actors, and they went on strike. Warren Beatty went on strike. But again, even Harrison Ford was working equity. Karen Allen was working equity. They were all working I really had thought that the idea of Danny DeVito as Sala was just an urban legend until I read it in your book. That was a real thing for a while. Yeah, Stephen wanted him. Stephen wanted him, and he just wanted 
too much money or the time. Days, peanuts. Yeah, I think it was 50,000. But my mandate was this is $20 million. Figure it out. Not a penny more, not a penny more. In fact, I'm doing the budget. I'm doing the budget and I send it over to Paramount because, again, George owns it. George Jones owns the copyright. George Jones the negative. Paramount's money. So Paramount had to say yes. I'd send it over to Paramount and they'd say, no, it's not $20 million. It's $21.7 million. They say, no. And come back to me and I'd look at it and went back and forth four or five times. And then I realized what I'm doing, the pound was going up and down like this very fast. I'm doing it at 2.1 or whatever it is, dollars per pound, and it's 20 million. By Tide Paramount does it three or five days later, the pound is higher. So we locked it in at a number no matter what the pound fluctuation was. And everybody was happy. It was $20 million, which is, even for that day, wasn't a lot of money. A picture that shot on location, picture to the shot in North Africa, picture the shot in London, picture the shot in Hawaii, picture the shot in the United States, had huge, not huge, but a lot of special effects. $20 million was nothing, especially when you compare it to the second. Just those sets. The sets for the Well of the Souls or the Map Room, those are amazing. We had a terrific art director, production designer, Norman Reynolds, really one of the best. I've worked, Henry Bumstead, I think, it was one two-time Oscar winner. I always thought he was the best. Norman Reynolds was Oscar winner too, but oh, he was good. When you're reading that script for the first time, does it feel different? Does it feel like this is something that's going to be really special? Or is it one of those you just, everything seems like it's going to be that way and sometimes they're not? Because my office was across, now we're at the A company, because my office was directly across the street from Universal, and I had come from Universal, even though Lauren Graffiti was a Universal picture but independent, I had a lot of friends there. Mel Sattler was head of the legal department, Hilton and Marshall Green, who were head of production, et cetera, Bill Batliner, who was head of casting. And those guys would always have lunch together, and I'd come over and have lunch with them, maybe once a week. The rest of the time, I'd be eating lunch at the egg company. Didn't have time to leave. And I did say to them, we have a winner. I didn't know how big a winner. But I did go out on a limb and say, this is a winner. Yeah, it just, and partly maybe because I had grown up, not in the theater, but on video seeing dozens of serials with the cliffhangers. And George had me look at, while we were still at Universal, and I was starting to do more American graffiti, and then we moved elsewhere. I would, we'd go into the theater and I'd watch serials, cliffhangers. And sometimes I remember once Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins were in the area. They came to see a film. And sometimes once in a while, George would come in. But usually it was just me looking at serials or with a few friends. And it's, oh, that's a great, that's a great idea. Oh, let's use that. And you'd write it down. And that's where Raiders came from. And that we didn't even have Larry Kasdan at the time. And, and look around. It's a serial, a cliffhanger, except for the first one where you meet the government men and all. It was designed for every 13 to 15 minutes, a cliffhanger. And I don't want to say we copied everything, but a lot of the things in it were in other movies, old movies. I still love serials. That's where Star Wars came from. George wanted to do Flash Gordon. He couldn't get the rights. Come on, starting with the crawl and all this Flash Gordon. Look around and copy. Every film is a copy. You may not see it. A lot of these cop and robber movies, I call them cop and robber movies, are old Western remakes. The guy with the white hat, the guy with the black hat is a policeman and the bad guy. And the stagecoach is the SUV, and the horse is the car. Come on. 
That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, I love the creativity that went into lifting all those different pieces and then just putting them together and making them so fresh. And that the famous story conference of Lucas and Spielberg and Kasdan and just George Lucas, just so many ideas just pouring out of him. It was wild to read that. George is an idea person. He's And with names, boy, whether it be Star Wars with all the animals and stuff like or R2-D2 or C-3PO or Darth Vader, those, boy, he can come up with a name instantly. I've never met anybody like that. George, here's some characters. What names do you want to give? Dum, 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 dum. I seem to remember you saying that, especially around uh, Return of the Jedi, just how he would name all those characters in Jabba's court and on the skiff and all that. That's amazing. But he's like that with ideas, too. And he understands. He understands filmmaking. George is very good with budget, too. He can look at a storyboard and say, we don't need this part of it. Or all of the, nearly all of the sets, whether it be a bunker or inside the well of the souls or whatever, we build a miniature and figure out how it's going to look. Or a corridor or the interior of the Millennium Falcon or the bunker itself had a lot of corridors. And he'd look at it and say, we don't need this. We don't need this part. We're never going to see that. In the book, I think I talk about the, the flying wing. We had a miniature, and it was going to cost a lot, of money, a lot of money. Because actually, the company that built Rolls-Royce was building the flying wing. It could do everything but fly. And it was way over budget. I didn't know what to do. George was coming down, and I met him at the back door. He said, how are things going? I said, going very fine, except with the flying wing, it's way over budget. This is in the book. So he steps in to this conference room, and Kathy Kennedy's there, which was Stephen's secretary at the time. And Stephen, and I don't know who all, I don't remember. But the first thing he did was pick up the flying wing, and he held it out like this on the tips of the two wings. And he says, what is this? They knew what it was. And Stephen says, the flying wing. And he said, how much is it going to cost, Howard? And I gave him a number, and I said, he says, what's in the budget? I said, 750000 And he says, so he took it, and he went, and it was a four-engine plane. And he broke the outer two engines off, and he said, how much will it cost now? And I said, we're on budget. I wish I had a picture of Steven Spielberg's face. It wasn't because it was being cut. It was the way George did it was a surprise to everybody. That's George. How was it working with your fellow producers on that? I think you worked for Frank Marshall. Frank was going to produce Radio Land Murders for us and was in and out of the office when it was being written. And it came to a time where the script wasn't working and we had a writer-director on it. And George said, and it was a universal picture, it was actually the third picture that George owed Universal, and he eventually made it. And he said, go up and see Ned Tannen and try to convince him without him knowing that we want to stop, we don't want to do it, which I did. And Ned was the first one to say, let's put it on the back burner. Now Frank was out of a job. So George said, let's bring him on as a producer, and Howard, you be the executive producer with me. Frank had been around. Frank is a very good producer today. Frank will tell you that Howard did all the work. Because that's me. That's how I was trained. And again, in the book, one reason why I wrote the book, it's you can't start at the top. You have to learn what all your craft people do and why they ask you to leave early. They're maybe asking to leave for lunch early because they're going to go to the warehouse or they're going to go to their office and they're going to work on something for your picture. I learned that. Did you always have that work ethic that you had when you were doing your director training and production? Yeah, too much. Yeah, I believe in that. And sadly, I see 
too many younger people today that don't have that type of work. They either want to start at the top or they don't want to work. They just want to be paid. And I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, but I think you see that too. Sad. I loved what I do. I loved what I did then. I wanted to be in the business, wanted to direct, went to school. The SC Cinema Department at the time it was called. I love what I do. I love movies, but I love making them, love being a part of it, love making those decisions. And if something goes wrong, I love being able to say, this is how we fix it. Or if an actor shows up late or the actor doesn't show because he's sick, what are we going to do? I love making that decision now. And then you have challenges many times with actors. How do you work with them? You were a lot of rationalizing an actor or director. And certainly uh, this happens is screaming that day or nasty that day. And you say, well, but why? Did he have a fight with his wife? Did he get a ticket on the way to work? Are his children in trouble? Yeah. Billy Wilder, one day, was the sweetest guy, one day, was every time the phone would ring, would yell at me, answer it. Here I'm on the set, and the phone's ringing over there. It rings twice, and he's yelling at me. I brought a policeman in, a security guy, a guard, to answer the phone. Why? I found out at the very end of the day, his wife was flying to Europe. So he was concerned that she'd get on the plane. Is the plane okay? And all the next day, he was wonderful. Al Holbrook was difficult. Why? He was having difficulty with his teenage kids back in New York where he lived. I named three or four like that. And sometimes you never figure out why day after day somebody is, well, another wonderful director, his wife was dying. I didn't know that. So those are the challenges. You don't want those challenges, but you have to be able to deal with that. You have to deal with personalities. I'm always amazed at just how early you're working on stuff before the cameras even roll. It feels like you're working on multiple things, or at least there are things happening in the background that you're going to be involved in, or maybe touch base, and then they move on, and then you come back to it. Just to read those sections of like, well, Empire was working, but I'm also doing a little bit of Raiders, and then here comes Return of the Jedi, and it just feels like you're just never-ending work at that period of your career. Also, after a while at Lucasfilm, I was vice president of production, so you're not only handling the film that you're producing, you're handling vice president of production. Under production were other divisions, few divisions. We had merchandising that was separate, but you had to coordinate. I, they came to me and said, what characters do you have? We're not, and I'd say, we're not going to let you read the script. And you'd have to work with it. Book division was another division. Then you have the accounting and all of that. I, research was under me. The library for photographs and all of that was under me. Those are easy. The hard part is making a movie, a good movie, and staying on schedule, staying on budget. But when I do a budget, anything can go wrong. A lot of people will put in, let's say, one of the things that I would do, because I'm going back and forth from Lucasfilm North to Lucasfilm South, and then even when we were all up north, now I have to come back and forth to the labs, because we're working with the film. So you put in rental car, X amount of dollars. No, I would put in such and such day, another rental car, rent. and then, because you're figuring all that out, what does that do? It's a lot of work. But you're basically on budget that way. You're just not throwing a number in. I can't even imagine the amount of pressure that you were under when it came to something like Return of the Jedi, where it's built up. You've had Star Wars, this huge hit. Empire tops that. And then, okay, what are we going to do for the next one? I can't even imagine the pressure that you were under for something like that. Also, story-wise, it was really the end Star Wars was Act 1, Empire was Act 2, which is the meat of everything, and of course Jedi was Act 3, even though George felt there would be sequels and prequels at the time. But it was, so you had to end it, end it with 
Yeah, it's, it's always a challenge. You're always hoping you make the right decision. I will tell you that although she's not given credit, Marcia Lucas at the time is a great storyteller. She she lent many, she's in the book too, many ideas, but she was one that would say, George, this scene isn't working. Now go back and do it. She was very good at that. She's very creative. And she came up with a lot of things. Like the end, I think it's in the book, the very end of Raiders of the Lost Art. She said, what happened to Marion? We went back second unit and shot it in San Francisco where we were. I, I was really glad to read in your book just because I had always heard that she was the secret sauce and then you really confirmed it. Just even with things like the scene in the carbon freezing chamber in Empire Strikes Back where she was taking a swag at the edit and saying, oh, it was this beautiful establishing shot. It looks like the devil in hell. And like, why aren't we using the shot? It's wow. Yeah. Like one of the more iconic images from the film itself. Which very true. I think that Rinsler interviewed six or seven people. And I said, fine, but if they say anything negative, I want it in the book. (laughs) I have to be fair. Although I'll tell you, I told Rinsler, if there are any, we went through many drafts, but I start taking out some of the negatives, not the negatives of me, of things that happen of individuals. And I know that sells books, but not for me. Rinsler, I said, interview more. And Rinsler flew to Hawaii where she was living, called me as he was driving to leave at the airport. And he said, fabulous interview. Thank you very much. I had a tour rate. I was the one that called Marsh and said, say whatever you want. But I didn't realize she went beyond Howard Kazanjian is a nice man. She started talking about her, and it was the first interview she had ever done. And I said to Rensler, how can we use this? It was Rensler who put it in throughout the book. He did a great job. And I'm so glad she's in there. Now, George may not like it, but it's fact. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience working on Demolition Man? Because that is definitely one of my favorites as well. Peter Lenkoff came to me with the script, and I read it, and I liked it. And it had been something I had, that type of genre I had never done before. But I said, this can be a big picture. And I gave him some notes. And before I took it on, I gave him some notes. And he went back and he made some changes. And then I optioned the script and took it to Corelco first because this was their type of movie. And they said, yes. And I was to be paid more money than I ever had been paid before or since. And we start working with them. And after about a month, some people came out of the woodwork and said they own the script. And to make a long story short, Peter Lenkov had worked for these people as secretary or gopher. I don't know. I don't remember what. But at night, he wrote several scripts on their typewriter, and they claimed it was his. So Corelco said, you go figure out the E&O and come back. Otherwise, we don't want it. That was a challenge. Um, I we eventually went to Warner Brothers, who could figure all that stuff out. And they said, this is really a Joel Silver picture, which it was. So Joel said, I want to do it. And then there was a rewrite and another rewrite. And then Stallone was considered and dropped out. And then I brought in Steven Seagal. I'm trying to remember the order. No, I think, no. Somebody else came in. And it took so long with rewrites, he left and went off and did not a somewhat carbon-freezing Mel Gibson, somewhat carbon-freezing picture. And then we brought in, I brought in Seagal, and we did one or two rewrites, and then that disappeared. And Silver brought in, finally, 
brought in the cast. And I was a visitor on the picture. It wasn't the picture that I wanted to make. It got thinned out. And I still think one of the original scripts were the best. In fact, Peter Lenkoff didn't get full screenplay credit. There were other writers on it. I think we went through nine or 13 drafts. But I'm not... Joel Silver is a great producer, right? You know what he has done. The success is had. But Howard Kazanjian and Joel... It's not that we don't get along. We're just two different people. It was his picture, and he got it made. Joel got it made. What was that earlier version like? Very similar, but it was also dealt with Stallone's character looking for his wife, daughter, and more feeling, more human quality to it. But Silver got it made. Now, would I have been able to get it made someday? Who knows? I've had a number of pictures don't get made. We all do. For whatever reason. Does it get easier if you pin your hopes to something getting made and it doesn't? No. It's hard to make movies today. Especially if you've been around and you're a proven producer. Now you go to a studio. Most of us do. You have to go in with a package. I can't just... We used to be able to go in with a pitch sit down and talk for 20 minutes. Not anymore. Now, if you're maybe a big-time successful writer that sells 7 million books, you can do that. But it's not even setting in script anymore. You've got to go in and say, this is my director, or this is my leading actor. You have to have somewhat of a package, and that's what I'm dealing with today. And with the agents the way they are, how can I go in and get a leading director without money or an actor. The agents are going to say, show me your money. Yeah, it feels very much like you're in a catch-22. All of us are. Now, if you have a studio deal, it's a little different. If I had a studio deal, I could open my mouth and to the agent and say, this is the man I want, because they know the studio is behind me. But we all know that's our life. It just has gotten harder but that's what we have to do. So what are you working on now? I co-wrote a book a couple years ago called Playing for Time, and then actually had a screenplay to follow that was, and the book got called Death Roll All Stars. And it's a true story about a turn of the century, Wyoming prison, where nearly all of the prisoners were on death row. But they loved to play baseball. True story, baseball. And it's a story. And basically, as long as the team is winning or the individual player is winning, you didn't go to the gallows. And it's a story, it's a story about this one individual who is in prison and death row because he shot his girlfriend's husband. And he is one of the best of the baseball players. Now, that in the background, it's the warden and the governor who are using these prisoners to play a game because they're betting on them, gambling on them. They're using them to make brooms and stuff like that, which go into the coffers of these individuals. And through a number of circumstances, our leading character does go to the gallows. The point is that he didn't kill his girlfriend's husband. The girl did it. And while he's standing, you know, when executions those days, perhaps today too, they have a little audience, and he's standing on this rack ready to drop through the floor, and in the audience is the girlfriend. True story! And, of course, he was buried, and she died about six months later. We don't get into that in the story. But she died about six months later, and there was a baby, too, who died. And if you went to the cemetery today, the two headstones are next to each other. It's a great story. It's not Superman, and it's not Batman. And the people we've showed it to absolutely love it. And I have two other producer friends of mine 
that will be on it. One of my passion projects. And the challenge is to get a director or is the script perfect? It's not perfect for every director. They're going to want to make some changes. Actually, there's stuff in the book. In the screenplay, it doesn't get into the brooms and all of the corruption, but there's some of the corruption there. But it's a story about people and the time. During the century, baseball was big. They played up various teams. They brought out onto the film in shackles, and they were a winning team. But because of politics, it was his time to go to the gallows. That's what I want to do. Death Row All-Stars. It's about $34 million picture. Coming from you, I'm sure it's exactly 34. One of my great friends that I trained when he was nobody always used to say, and he's great at budgeting, would say, you want to cut it from 34 to 25? We can do it. You want to cut it to 15? We can do it, but something's going to go. I hope you get that made. That sounds terrific. I'd like to. Yeah. Like you're saying, it doesn't always have to be superheroes. We can actually have real human stories right now, which I think we're lacking. This one, feel it in your heart. And you'd learn a bit of history. That particular prison is now a museum. Is there anything next for the book? Are you going to do an audio version or anything of it? No, I would if we could. I don't want to do it on my own. It has to be the publisher. The publisher we went to was Cameron, and they were very good in the genre of books that they do. But during the process, they sold to Abrams, which doesn't do that type of book. But Abrams loved it and let us go with the, everything that we had written the, and pictures, 400 pages. And said, we'll put it on better paper and it'll be hard And So Abrams was great. But many publishers, unless you're Grisham or somebody like that, publishers don't do any advertising. You have to do the promotion yourself, mostly in periodicals or trade magazines or whatever. And so I just guess I'm too busy to try to set it all up myself and do it. Would I do it? Yeah. Yeah, because I can tell the story, and I can do it with feeling. You've done a little acting, right? I seem to remember you saying, at least your hands have been in a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Kazanjian, thank you so much for your time tonight. I'm so glad we were able to make this work. Thank you. We're good. You kept after me. Sometimes you have to, so I've, I appreciate you giving in. 